sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And the scene is a great coliseum. And the occasion is a foot race, a distance race. Um, and the contestants include the author and the members of his flock as well as you and I by mutual faith. The cloud of witnesses, it mentions, um, that fills the stadium is made up of great spiritual athletes of the past, or as uh, I've heard it referred to as the Hall of Faith members. Um, every one of them is a gold medal winner, and they're watching you run. Um, they're not live witnesses of the event, but they're witness by the fact that their past lives bear testimony to the monumental preserving faith, like uh, Abel's, um, which in verse or in chapter eleven of Hebrews it says, "Though he died, he still speaks." Um, everywhere you look in the vast arena, there's a kind face nodding encouragement to you, saying, "I did it, and so can you." You can do it. You have my life to help you do it. Can you imagine Abraham stroking his long beard and smiling as watching you run the race? Or Sarah waving at you and telling you to go on? Um, your heart is pumping wildly and you are afraid. And yet with all your being, you want to do well. But how do you run well? Um, Hebrews, in this, just these short little verses here in Hebrews 12... It gives four reasons, that, or four kind of synopsis of, for my, um, I guess my, uh, now I lost the word. Um, four things, I, four points I pulled out of there. Um, it's divest, run, focus, and consider. So those will be my four points this morning. <clears throat> uh, the first point is divest, or to strip off or deprive, to rid or free from is the meaning of that. So the call is to divest. Um, it's clearly spelled out in the opening first part of the verse there, of first part of verse 1, um, or middle, I guess. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The divestment here refers to a radical stripping off of your clothing before a race, as was the Greek custom of the day. They would strip everything off so they could run better. The writer orders a double divestment, though, and I found this to be quite um, challenging in my own life. Um, first of all, he's you know we all think of the aspect of laying aside every sin which just so easily beset us, but before that, he says, let us lay aside every weight. So it's things that weigh us down. And some of those things might not be necessarily sin. They just weigh us down and distract us. I had to think of uh, a big one in our day is just technology. It just distracts us and takes our time. And then there's also things that 
are good, but can be overdone. Like you can get, I found myself recently just being really absorbed in work and just like, it took all the space in my mind, it seemed like, and it just, it, it, it hinders you from running. It hinders that free running that we need to do. Um, but it's, um, but he also calls us to, uh, rid ourselves or free ourselves from sin where, um, the, th- the sin that we are especially commanded to throw off is described as the sin which clings to us so closely. That is specific sins unique to us as individuals and to which we easily fall. Each of us has our own temptations, um, our own besetting sins. They're sins that more easily beset us and envelop us. We, it might not be... Um, enticing to others and it might not be something they struggle with but it's something we struggle with um they just have a way of wiggling in through our eyes our ears or our touch and our taste um or thoughts simply because of who we are and our own personal makeup likewise there are sins that have little appeal to us but irresistibly engulf others um just some Ones I thought of um, among the most besetting or clinging of these sins is uh, that many people struggle with is jealousy. Um, I looked up kind of what people would think of jealousy as is an ache you feel in your soul when another does well. Pessimism. You ever thought of pessimism as a weight that weighs you down or a besetting sin? A despairing negative negativism that perpetually sours everything. A lust for others, for more things, or for position. Pride, the self-absorbed sin that plants you at the center of everything. Anger, a volcanic heart that belches fire. Lying, a sin that tinges your most intimate relationships with deceit. Besetting sins are those that attach and hold us with the promise of pleasure, including even some pleasures that bring no happiness or enjoyment, but only disappointment and more despair. uh, The scriptural command calls for extreme actions. If we are to finish well and persevere in the faith, we must strip our souls naked of every weight and sin which clings to us. The benevolent, knowing faces of those who have run the race before us beckon us to do so. The eternal fact is, you'll never run the race that is set before you if you do not put off the things that cling to you. What are your besetting sins? Will you name them before God? He already knows them perfectly. But then also the question is, to going a little bit deeper, what not only is your besetting sin, but what hinders you? Literally, what is the weight that hinders you from running? Most likely, it's not a sin. It might even be something that is good for others, but bad for you. A place, a habit, a pleasure, a hobby, an event, or an entertainment. If this otherwise good thing pulls you down, you must strip it away. This is radical talk. 
pretty radical to strip off everything, but it's a matter of life, and it's about finishing and finishing well. So my next point after divest was to run. So once we're properly divested and everything stripped away, we can run. With every hindrance cast aside, there remains one great thing to do, and that is to run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's the last part of verse 1. Persevering grit is an awesome, beautiful thing. Persevering grit possesses a terrible beauty, but it is eternally beautiful when devoted to the real-life spiritual race that is marked out for us. The sense of biblical perseverance is patient fortitude. Patiently gritting it out. Each one of us has a, um, a different race to run also. We have a specific race mapped out just for us. And the course for each of us to run is different. <clears throat> and the uniqueness is determined by God. Who charts it all will factoring in who you are and who you and I are right now as to our giftedness our background and our responsibilities, our age and our health. He knows all of those things, and he has a specific route for us to run. But most of all, it's based off, or our route to run is, um, he factors in most of all who we are in Christ. He never gives us more than we can take. We can always persevere and run on. Your race is like no one else's, and mine is not like yours. Whether you're a child, a youth, a parent, a grandparent. Some races are relatively straight and some seem like they're all turns or uphill. Some are flat hiking trails and they're just not equal. Some races are long but some are longer. But the glory is for each of us that we can finish the race set before us. I might not be able to run your course or you might not be able to run mine or find mine impossible, um, but we can each finish our own. Both of us can finish well if we choose and if we rely on him who is our strength and our guide. And we can experience and echo what Paul said. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Perseverance has nothing to do with giftedness. But everything to do with our heart. So there's the story the guy had in the book. Um, In 1981... Bill Broadhurst entered the Pepsi Challenge 10,000-meter race in Omaha, Nebraska. Surgery 10 years earlier for an aneurysm on his brain had left him paralyzed on his left side. But on that misty July morning, he stood with 1,200 men and women at the starting line. The gun sounded and the crowd surged ahead. Bill threw his stiff leg forward and pivoted on it as his foot hit the ground. His slow plop, plop, plop rhythm seemed to mock him as the pack raced into the distance. Sweat rolled down his face and pain pierced his ankle. 
but he kept going. Some of the runners completed the race in about 30 minutes, but it was two hours and 29 minutes until Bill reached the finish line. Can you imagine being two hours behind the other racers? A man approached from a small group of remaining bystanders. Though exhausted, Bill recognized him from the pictures in the newspaper. It was Bill Rogers, the famous marathon runner, who then draped his newly won Boston Marathon medal around Bill's neck. Bill Broadhurst's finish was glorious as that of the world's greatest, even though he finished last, because he ran with perseverance. Biblical perseverance um, refuses to be deflected. It overcomes obstacles and delays, and it's not stopped by discouragement. Uh, Oh, by discouragement within or opposition without, and it's available to us all. um, It's quite within the reach of every one of us to manifest positive, conquering perseverance, putting one foot in front of the other until we reach the glorious end. The race is not for the sprinters that flame out after 100, 200, or 400 meters. It's for the faithful plotters, people like you and me, fast or slow, strong or weak, just plodding along every single day. So then the next point I have is to focus. And this is where we get our perseverance from. Um, If we've stripped off stripped ourselves bare of all besetting sins and hindrances and have begun to run with perseverance our race, the race that God has marked out for us, we are then given the focus that guarantees that we will finish well. The focus, of course, is Jesus. We are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's in verse 24 of Hebrews uh, 12. So we're to focus on Jesus. I think it's interesting that he doesn't say Jesus Christ when he says looking unto Jesus Christ, or he doesn't say looking unto God, or um, he specifically uses just the word Jesus, the incarnate Son of God who lived as a man on earth. Jesus was the runner without parallel. There was nobody that ran like him. Every obstacle, if you think about it, was thrown up in his way. He was tempted just like you and I. Um, But he never stumbled and he finished. He finished going away. He was the one that did an end or put an end to death and suffering eternally by his blood. He became the founder and perfecter of our faith by the way he lived. He, his life, literally pioneered faith. And we must deliberately lift our eyes from other distracting things and focus, uh, focus on him and the, the way he ran. And since we need faith to run the, way, run the race, we must be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Sorry, I got mixed up here where I was at in my notes. 
We must deliberately lift our eyes from other distracting things and focus with utter concentration on him and continue to do so. We must not look away even for an instant. <clears throat> so here's, a, here's another short story. On August 7th, 1954, during the greatest Empire Games, the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, the greatest mile run match ever took place. It was touted as the Miracle Mile because Roger Bannister and John Landy were the only two sub-four-minute milers in the world. Bannister had been the first man ever to run a less-than-four-minute mile. Both runners were in peak condition. Bannister, a medical doctor who later became Sir Roger Bannister and the master of Oxford College, strategized that he would relax during the third lap and save everything for his finishing drive. But as he began that third lap... Landy poured it on, stretching his already substantial lead. Immediately, Bannister adjusted his strategy, increasing his pace and gaining on Landy. He quickly cut the lead in half, and at the bell for the final lap, the two men were even. Landy began running even faster, and Bannister followed suit. Both men were flying. Bannister felt he was going to lose if Landy did not slow down. Then came the famous moment as at the last stride before the home stretch, the crowd roared. Landy could not hear Bannister's footfall and he looked back. A fatal lapse of concentration. Bannister launched his attack and won the Miracle Mile that day by five yards because he lost concentration. He lost his focus. Those who look away from Christ the end goal of all our races will not finish well. And that's exactly, um, and this is, this was exactly what was happening, um, to some treading the, the water, the stormy waters around the early church. They began to take their eyes off of Christ and to fix them instead on the hardships, challenging them. Some had begun to look elsewhere for answers and the author of Hebrews was calling them to regain their focus on Jesus. <clears throat> so we're supposed to focus on Jesus, but we're also to focus on what he focused on. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That's in verse 2 of chapter 12. Jesus' focus on the coming of his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement at God's right hand, plus the joys of redeeming a people for himself, strengthened him to do two things. First, he endured the terrible agony of the cross with an intensity and with a unity of perception, which none of us can really fathom because his soul was so absolutely in his power. He was so utterly surrendered and so simply subjected to the suffering. The agony that Jesus endured on the cross was worse for him precisely because he was God. Second, um, he scorned the shame of the cross, and that is um, he thought nothing of the shame. He dismissed it with contempt as nothing. And Jesus did all this because he fully knew the bounding... Um, endless joy that awaited him on the other side. Now here's the amazing part. Christ's joy can be our joy. His joy is what is set before us, it says. 
And the answer is because we can be one in him. Christ is in us and we are in him. Where Christ is, we are. So it says he's seated at the right hand of God. So that means we're, if we're in Christ, we're at the right hand of God. In heavenly places. That in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.7 We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So his boundless, endless joy will be ours if we run with perseverance. If we will focus on the joy that Christ has set before us, we will endure the sufferings of this world and will dismiss any shame incurred in his name as nothing. And we will run the race to his glory. So my last point is to consider. In, uh, here in Hebrews 12, uh, when the writer of Hebrews uh, has the challenge to run with endurance the race that is set before us, he restates the command to focus on Jesus in fitting terms of the athlete. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Um, another translation says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The phrase, uh, grow weary or faint-hearted, was sports kind of sports uh, language in the ancient world to describe a runner's exhausted collapse at the end of a race. So if we're to avoid, as Christians, if we're to avoid spiritual collapse, we're to consider Christ and the opposition he faced from the likes of Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate and um, we're con- to consider how he faced them with confidence Meekness and strength. And we must not miss the overreaching message of the passage. We are to be totally absorbed with Jesus. He is to fill our skies like the morning sunrise, and he is to be our high noon and our sunset. All day long, all the time. He's supposed to be everything. We're supposed to be considering him and how he ran. That's a, that was a challenge to me as I thought about that. In every aspect of life, all day long, am I really considering how Christ, how Christ ran His race, and how that applies to me in my my life, my everyday working it out? Um, Whether we've been an athlete or like to run, or I'm not really much of a runner, but we all have a race to run in this hostile world. <clears throat> Whether we're 9 or 19 or 90, um, we all are in a race. And we're surrounded by a great cloud of lives whose example call us to our best, to do our best, 
patriarchs, um, such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prophets, Moses and Elijah and Daniel, the apostles, martyrs, great preachers, exemplary missionaries, our departed family members, friends, the list goes on, but their kind faces invite us to finish well. And their memories remind us that we can do it and not to lose heart. So in closing, I just want to run over my little points again. We're to divest. We must throw off everything, every besetting sin, those sins whose crimson-tipped fingers so easily entangle us. Our besetting sins are unique to us, and they may not tempt others, but they slay us as we swill their sweet, seeming sweetness. We must cast off everything that hinders us, even the good things that hinder us. If we don't, we'll never run as we ought to. Are you and I willing to do some radical divesting? The next point was run. Then, after we divest, we must run our race, the race that God has marked for us. Your race is not my race, and my race is not yours. You can finish your, your race. It is God's will that you finish your race. And he will give you the gift to persevere as you run. Then we're to focus. We must focus on Jesus. There must be no distracted glances. Jesus must cover the sky He must be our center, and we must focus on his focus and his joys because it is our joy. The joy set before us will give us the power to endure, even despising the world's disdain. And then we are to consider. We are to consider him. Our life is to be spent considering how he lived. Our whole life is to be spent considering how he lived. We're to run as Jesus did, completely divested. We are to run with him. We are to run toward him, and we are to fix our eyes on him. We are to focus on his focus. He is to be our perpetual consideration. He has a race for us to run. We can do it only as we lean on him.